Hey everyone, this is your host, Gons, and welcome to another episode of Startup Conversations, View from the CTO, a collaboration between Seed Table and CircleCI, where we sit down with some of the greatest CTOs in Europe to deconstruct how to build and operate high-performing technology teams. My guest today is Felix Eichler. Felix is a co-founder and CTO of UserLink, a digital adoption platform that helps people master software instantly. Before founding UserLane, Felix worked as a software engineer at ParkPocket, the app for parking space management. Felix is also a graduate of the Technical University of Munich. And did I mention that he was named one of Forbes 30 under 30? Yes, you heard me right. So it's no surprise that in our conversation, Felix absolutely delivered. We talk about everything. Why CTOs should build a mentor network, how to prevent burnout, why software design is closer to art than manufacturing, why you should think of your company's culture as a product you need to manage, and much, much more. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Felix, welcome to the podcast. I'm looking forward to this. This should be fun. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you, Gonzalez, for the very warm welcome. <laughs> Perfect. So um, let's start with some formalities. Let's let's get going. So what's like the two-minute version of Felix? Let's let's start there and then we'll start branching I, out. I, I love this, uh, the starting with formalities. And uh, so my, the two-minute version of me is at, as a small kid, I somehow drank too much of the magic potion. I started getting into programming really early on. I was like 10 or something uh, when I wrote my first pieces of code. And then um, uh, it was made possible for me to attend the Computer Science University, Technical University of Munich, um, a really good one here in Europe, at the age of 15, even before I finished my high school diploma. And uh, so I was really nerdy as a kid. But then um, life took a different turn i got interested into entrepreneurship and really having an impact on society so um with at the age of 20 i started user lane a software as a service company now and we are now five years in we have uh, collected around 15 million in funding so far and have just last year grown from 50 to around 100 people on the uh, in, in the company now located on uh, all over europe and also i'm very humbled to be featured on the forbes uh, 30 under 30 list this year that 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 is that is sort of quite quite an introduction, and you did it in less than two minutes. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the formality part, right? <laughs> so now up yeah. to the important. <laughs> cool. So let's 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 dive into the into the fun stuff, uh, really. So, co-founder, CTO of each lane. I'm 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 we're gonna sort of break it down in a bunch of different ways, but I, I would like to start with sort of the tension between being a co-founder and the, and the CTO. Uh, how, how do you sort of perceive that? Yeah, the the role of the CTO is really an interesting one. Um, you're in the beginning, um, like there is probably 10 times more business co-founders out there than technical co-founders. So it feels like almost you're like um, receiving pitches and offers and kind of, yeah. So we I met I met my co-founders just um, at the pizza booth, really, um, on our startup event here in Munich. <laughs> and we were we were really hungry and then got talking. And yeah, uh, the dynamic was was really interesting. So my, my business co-founder, Hartmut, he's uh, 15 years older, has a background in consulting. So very different also from me. And um, but this is really the the secret ingredient and the magic sauce of any like of of many um, well working relationships in business or in private is that you share the values but you have different skills and preferences and that's um, that has really taken us all the way right so I see 
I, I can look at things from a technical perspective. I can really imagine how, how to build them. And Hartmut is really good at envisioning how this will work for the customer and what they will anticipating their demands. So figuring out the chemistry is like the first job, right? Like as a CTO, you're, you're, gonna, you're basically a business guy who also knows tech, right? And I think that um, there is a choice you have to make um, whether, whether this is what you want, right? And it's, it's like the business will play a more important part than the technology in, in many aspects because at the end of the day, you can also uh, die of technological fanciness. It doesn't really help your customers and users to, to benefit from that. And it's just really a beautiful architecture and something like this. But that is, is not likely, not the, not the maximum greatest company you can build, right? Because then you will lack growth and that, that will lead to other issues. And uh, on the other hand, of course, you also don't want to end up being um, having un facing unsurmountable tech debt. And this is really the job of the CTO of bal balancing these two extremes and finding just the right balance for, for, the, for any given company. And any given company has um, a different taste for, for their balance and will, have, will find a different sweet spot. Yeah, what I'm curious about the sort of the role of the, the CTO is how it evolves over time. So you started the company, you're well over 100, you raised 50 mil. So how does that sort of role evolve over time? And what else sort of you think some of the most interesting like inflection points? Yeah, sure. So uh, we, I've been doing this for five years and basically every year I had to reinvent myself. So in the first year, it's basically building the prototype. You're basically coding day and night, building the first version of the, pro, uh, of the product, whereas your, your business part is building the business and finding customers and users for that. Um, then you basically get into the seed stage, you hire your first between one and 10 engineers. Um, and, and then you're basically acting like a tech lead and team lead. You're enabling other engineers uh, to work. You onboard them. You, you basically set a lot of principles, guidelines, like you, you kind of envision the whole thing and plan out the whole thing. Um, but there's also now some other coders next to you. And probably here, um, this is one of the most interesting parts, really, because there you have to split your attention between like, you still write code probably, um, but also you have to do like investor reportings, PowerPoint slides, a bit of uh, company communication and everything. And in my experience, this is a tricky stage because, because not just because you have to context switch a lot, but actually because you have to change your altitude, your, your of the perspective a lot. Um, so from writing like the next 10 lines of code to then in the next uh, in the next hour, in the next meeting, then pitching the vision and and or maybe convincing um, another investor or employee to come on board, that is really stressful on the mind, um, much more than actually switching from product strategy to sales strategy to marketing strategy. That is all if you discuss it on the same altitude, that's that's pretty normal. So then you, if you keep growing, you're lucky enough, right? You, you get another funding round or have good revenue. You hire more and more engineers. You'll have your first managers in the team. So you have now indirect reports, right? And for me, it was the time also to look for a VP of engineering. And since then, um, pretty much the, the role of the CTO really, really changes. Um, in my situation, I was also responsible for product. So um, basically, it's the same story for, the, for any product and design team. And then um, you are tasked with less with more and more tasks that are abstract and that don't have immediate deadlines so when you still are involved in the feature teams as a tech leader as a as a as an as a coder you you pretty much know that next week is the deadline and the week after the customer gets it and you basically see what you do now you have the effects of your work really really soon um, when you sit with the customer and see their excitement but now when you're the cto and you're responsible for strategy you know that that takes longer to develop to build up you need to talk to dozens of people um, you need to like 
make time also for yourself to think about it and to find inspiration then you express it and then it takes like you know uh, multiple development cycles for the product teams and the engineering teams to uh, build that and to then release that and then eventually you will earn the fruits of that right by having many many customers or a whole market segment your niche that you try to find um, uh, you'll you'll figure that out by um, by getting the feedback from them in numbers and it's all much much more abstract and so you need to one, one learning I, I really had is you need to focus on spending your time proactively on what you should be doing because, of course, you have a lot of context in the organization. You know probably large parts of the code base and the whole product, and you just you probably just know a lot because you've been in the company since day one. And uh, people will pull you into things, which is which is good, right? But you need to really um, like the doses makes the difference between poison and medicine here. Um, so you really want to make time for proactivity and working on strategy and meeting with customers is, is really important, uh, especially for, for anyone also in the engineering and product side of the business. This is not just for sales and marketing people because you got to understand what they really want and what, they, what really are their jobs to be done. So, so, so much to sort of double click on, and I'm going to try to go in sort of chronological order. Uh, but so the, the, the 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 second stage sort of that inflection point that you mentioned is sort of tricky from the moment you are sort of the sort of the problem solver the sort of the hacky coder who builds a pro first product prototype <laughs> to raising your first round hiring your first team member and just having to do this context switching between managing recruiting coding strategizing yep. so what do you think some of the sort of the common mistakes that people and uh, sort of CTOs or technical leaders at this stage should be mindful of. Ooh, there is there is many. I mean, for, for but I'll, I'll I'll just say them in the order that they come to my mind now. But one of the one of the biggest things or biggest risks that can happen to yourself is burnout, right? You'll just um, between everything you think you need to work more and work as an entrepreneur or also in in for many folks in, in that work in startups, work is a bottomless pit, so it will never end. You'll never finish work it's not that you have shifts for one day and you kind of after after a certain amount of time you go again and it was great and then you really have uh, dedicated time for friends family social um exercising doing sports um just doing nothing also and you need to make that you need to really build that in you into your schedule and you need to kind of manage prevent yourself from from burning out and you kind of only feel that after two or three years like uh, and and that has been for me one of the biggest learnings and emphasis now. And I now want to build an environment that is not just for me as the individual um, person, but even for also other team members who also feel that to build a healthy work-life balance or work-life integration model where it's really about about the impact and about the results. And this is very good if you have OKRs and stuff like this. But then how much time you put into the work um, is does does not matter. Um, that much anymore because it's about impact and also you it, it, you kind of should uh, prevent yourself from feeling guilty when um, you're not spending anymore the the 70 hours that you probably did in the, fir in the in the first phase and then one of the other mistakes is just like not thinking about these four topics that you mentioned right strategizing and managing sometimes people just like don't prioritize them right and then you build also you have you can have strategy debt and management debt you know it's the same thing as tech debt right if you uh, if you are ne negligent about these things and that you need to clean up at some point and so one of the common mistakes that um, i think it's very likely that that you might fall into at first is not not even thinking about them and so you need to actively work on yourself and work on 
what you should be doing and exchange with peers and exchange also um, with with founders and other other CTOs who have been there, done that. And this is where I learned the most. So really building up this mentor network and it doesn't have to be a dedicated mentor. You can just probably start with reading a few blogs, listening to podcasts like these and um, probably also join like a, a mentorship network. And there's many free ones out there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that's going to be tremendously helpful as people go through through those stages. The the other inflection point, and, and this sort of comes from my own experience as well, is sort of this shift uh, that happens when you start uh, or, or you go from managing ICs, from managing individual contributors to managing managers. You mentioned sort of this idea of <laughs> recruiting your, your VP engineering. So how do you think about sort of the, the difference between managing ICs and managing managers? The short answer is it becomes easier because when you're when you're dealing with managers, right? They they also they basically also sit on the other side of the table with their direct reports. So um, they they likely are more aware of what's going on and what the expectations are, and they're more of like the whole meta level of the process. Um, so I, I generally find it's it's much easier to manage um, senior people, right? And the one of the biggest differences is that you have to really trust them and that you have to um, likely they're going to know more than you in something and you need to enable that. Right. And you need to allow them to build out also their vision. And so you got to get really in sync with them and think about like just what type of company you want to build. And then essentially you'll pretty much work with them like you would with a partner. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the, this idea of trust is, is, is key when you think about managing managers. Definitely, right? It's a, it's basically like a like a chain of trust, right? And of a chain of also enablement, right? And I mean, the same frameworks still apply. It's not uh, it's not that different, except for it gets easier. So it's always about providing a purpose, right? Um, providing them with um, autonomy and providing them with opportunities for personal growth. And uh, if you kind of think about these three things, you probably cover eighty percent of what you have to do as a manager or, or as a leader. Better said, actually. Speaking of sort of being a, a leader, you, you said that in the sort of the, you sort of chopped it up into like five stages. In the later stages, one of the hardest things is to sort of block time to, to think and strategize. Why do you think that sort of is important? And uh, what's sort of your, your daily routine right now to make sure that you do that stuff and everything else, yeah. of course? Perfect. Um, yeah, this is a really important point. And there has been a moment where I got so frustrated with my schedule and I really felt like so just like dizzy and confused every evening. And I've really felt like I'm missing out on my responsibilities. So I kind of um, started to play calendar Tetris. So looking at the calendar from uh, a game point of view, just how much free space can you get or how, how can you optimize it so that there is little, um, so that it suits you basically. So what I've done is I have the 1 or 1 p.m. rule, and this means I only do meetings after 1 p.m., right? This works not every day. Um, there's town halls in the morning, for example, in our case, but um, basically, if you do it 80-20, that's fine. And then you have all mornings to yourself, right? And the thing is, the trick is in the morning, don't start with reading anything, right? I don't even look at social media in the morning. I also don't look at my email or Slack in the morning. I, I, I try to you know, have a calm morning, eat breakfast, you know, maybe go for a, uh, for, for a brief walk and then start with what is really the priority one in the mid and long term, right? So that I work on that for like two, three hours, you know, and then it's basically already lunch. And then in the afternoon, you know, I get to manage and communicate and um, it will also be easier to communicate because there will you will have basically done your homework in the morning and uh, many things will become easier. And then, of course, it's really about, um, yeah, 
make like do you need that meeting right there was one moment i was saying to our entire engineering and product teams if anyone feels useless in a meeting don't join it that week was a bit uh, chaotic i must say <laughs> but it was good because actually it resulted in like five meetings being turned into two meetings and um, because people started questioning a lot and and it's really good so Basically, I, I motivated the team again to like self-regulate which meetings they feel impactful, which meetings do they look forward to, which meetings do they say, oh, no, not again. And then this is a this is feedback, right? This is a signal that either the meeting is pointless or the point was not understood or the purpose of the meeting was not understood. And then it's the manager's or the leader's responsibility to reinforce that point. And now also um, I, I try to have no meetings at all on Tuesday. And that also, of course, does not work every day, uh, every Tuesday, but that... Um, is at least a good ambition and then on tuesday that's either like the also often becomes a workshop day then and you get to really spend it on the on the more on the long term right and i think also it's completely normal if you're in an early stage startup and this this just the schedule totally wouldn't work for you i've also only implemented this after i read uh, i had already my vp engineering in place yeah absolutely absolutely um I, I want to sort of go back to to the point of of meetings, and and you said something that's very very important, uh, which is sort of empower your team to make these decisions. And I think this is something you should do consciously, because like meetings are very easy, especially recurring meetings are very easy to set, but they are very very hard to remove because you end up like hurting people's feelings, and it's like why change something that we've been doing for the past <laughs> few months? So uh, yeah, uh, how? how how do you communicate that to, to, to your teams to make sure like, hey, it's okay if you don't come to this meeting. It's, it's okay if we just kill this meeting. I mean, it's, that's not what I said. It's not okay to just randomly kill meetings or something, right? They're like meetings have a purpose, right? And you need to ask yourself, what is that purpose? And can we also do that without meeting synchronously uh, at the same time, you know, where where connections will be bad, people will be late, people will be not there that day, you know? So prefer async communication, asynchronous communication written and or, or record it maybe in a loom or in a brief video of yourself uh, rather than just like calling everyone and demanding their attention right so this meeting could have been an email you know is, is a right sentence and it like every meeting maybe should be an email and then only if you don't get a response after after following up then you set a meeting to really grab someone's attention right it's also like you don't just phone call people you know before like texting them or something right and same thing is with meeting maybe don't set a meeting rather just first send a message and then only if there is clarification needed or, or written communication doesn't work then maybe meet so just um also pro like look at all the other options that you have to convey information right what of these things can be automated right what is really um the meaning of the meeting right and then of course if you always keep talking about like the, the high level company goals the, the the happy faces of the users and customers then it, every meetings will also feel more meaningful right and this is a beautiful way to connect everything together also with um, the use of, of the OKR framework, for example. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, of course, I want to not sort of <laughs> implying that we should kill meetings for the sake of killing meetings, but it's sort of this mentality of like reassessing if the way we're communicating is like the, the, the right way. Uh, I can tell you're very intentional about the communication structures in your team. So tell me a bit more about that. What sort of structures do you have in place? What sort of tools do you use? How do you think about sync versus async? Yeah, these are good questions. And when you say that I'm I'm intentional about the the communication in my teams, well, you know, we 
we, from a technical background, you know, we're also very intentional about the why our microservices and APIs communicate, right? And so when you look at a company or a team, it's actually very similar to microservices, right? When you scale up, microservices is usually a good approach because you don't need to be in the full context of the domain in order to, to do a change. And uh, same thing with teams, right? The, the, at one point after like more than 10 engineers, right? It kind of just not everyone will know everything that's going on. And you kind of build communication structures that allow individuals to not know the big picture and the full picture. And therefore you need to um, basically start different squads as we call them um so different sub teams right they will they will post their updates you can read through them like a newsletter but you don't have to be in like their their sprint planning or something and this also scales this also means to include for example um the sales marketing teams and customer success teams this is this is a really good practice we found over the last year at userlane that this creates also um direct feedback channels where you want them and actually cuts down on some of all this, like repeating the same topics uh, to the same people again and again. One more point I want to add to this, that this has very much changed with the age of remote work. So then very much you should be asynchronous first for many reasons, because also if you are scattered around different time zones, um, if you are it, it, like getting people together um, is also like, always should be like the last resort. Like there is this order, right? Like first, um, write something down, then maybe call a meeting, and then only as a very, very last resort, you kind of like get people together in a group, right? So you also need to, you just map it out. So for example, we have a, a small little, a small little spreadsheet where we say, okay, these are the topics we want to talk about, like on a weekly level. This is what we can save us for the monthly level. This is what for what we do on the quarterly offsite, and that really helps us to also prior, prioritize and to main, remain focused. Totally, and I wanna. You said sort of this the importance of async communication as sort of the, the world changes and then goes re remote. Uh, what I'm very curious about is how do you think about hiring and recruiting talent in a world where essentially COVID made talent markets global, right? You guys mm -hmm. are you being yep. based in, in, in Munich, right? Yes, I, I say we are originally based in Munich, but basically we are now remote first. Um, many of our people are in Europe, some are outside of Europe, and as we grow, we will definitely become more global. And well, the markets, the, the talent markets are also global, right? And, and going remote is also not about saving costs, it's really about access to talent. And this, but also now that everyone's going remote, the competition for remote uh, workforces has also like <laughs> increased. So um, we also see like, salaries really increasing in like many many regions and markets and one thing we we try to do when hiring is like we we basically <laughs> i approach hiring conversations just like i approach also one-on-one -on -one conversations so i talk about autonomy mastery and purpose and basically i look for this win-win so for any given person every any given candidate right what what do they really want like and i really try to see through that and when they tell me yeah i've studied computer science and then blah 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 and then I, I ask like no but why why did you study computer science right and then listen to their story and often they they need to think a little bit because apparently many many interviews many in many interviews these questions don't get asked so i try to do that and i try to really understand what if i would be just a friend of this person would i even recommend applying this person to uh, that this person applies to use it and it works here right is it really a fit and i try to really elaborate on this on this win-win and of course then sometimes position user then sometimes rather not you know but that's that's really then it feels very organic and natural right and this also works remotely right and at the end of the day my kind of side mission at userland is also to build a workplace that people really love working for you know my, my my one of my inspirations of why i became an entrepreneur was that for me it was not taken for granted that work is fun 
and actually many of my many of my my early um, childhood friends or also family members they they did not enjoy their work so much so i specifically was like no this this cannot be truth right that you just go to work you look at the days to end and at the years to end until you retire that's that's so sad like i don't want to do that so um i met entrepreneurs and i they were like they struck me with like some of their enthusiasm that some of these uh, some of them had and so i this is how i got into entrepreneurship and starting to into the hey companies don't have to be bad like there can also be good companies work can actually be fun work is actually for me now and for hopefully many at userlane is self realization and self-fulfillment and this is this is what i try to manifest into the culture and this basically starts with with hiring and you basically ask what people find fulfilling right and then you see does that fit what you what what skills and types of people you need in the company and if it's a fit then um if you you basically make them a good offer and your culture is part of that offer and um, basically, I sometimes say that if a meeting is not uh, is not fun, then it's not a user lane meeting. And so people really um, enjoy collaborating with one another. And I'm especially proud of this since in the last 12 months, we grew from 50 to 100 people. And it actually feels like we're even having more fun than before. And I'm really proud of that dynamic. And I hope that I can keep it going uh, until until we are, we are much larger. Um, and kind of become a, a good enterprise, not a bad enterprise. But one thing is for sure, you're going to become an enterprise. You're not going to just slack your HR person anymore to to get some some paperwork done, but you've got to create a ticket in some system, you know, and they'll work over it in the next few days and stuff like this. But this is not bad, you know. This is actually just also to, for, to help them focus, you know. This is also just to... Um, the forum can ask you questions that you wouldn't have thought about otherwise to, uh, to to include information that you would have omitted. And it makes just things good. And it's, as long as you treat people as humans and not as like cogs in a system, I think your your culture will be set up for success. And it's, I mean, it starts with yourself as, as the leaders and then the people you hire and fire. That is that is how you how you basically manage your culture, like you manage a product, you listen to your user feedback and your users in this case are your employees and your coworkers. And then you, you iterate on that and you kind of can have open feedback sessions with them. And we're really approaching culture iteratively and we listen to our employees regularly. And we know that it's not culture, it's not something we define top down, but it's really a collaboration of everyone. And some people are more interested and they can really shape it. And some people just enjoy and come along. Uh, I'm very curious, like, what are some of the core traits you look for in new hires? And I'm, I'm not talking sort of hard skills or soft skills. I'm sort of essentially, like, what are some of the personality traits you look for in, in, in people who you think would fit the, the, the culture? Well, people who are also, um, first of all, able to, um, to enjoy what they're doing. Because this means that they're going to be in a good mood when they work, right? And they're going to be inspiring also to other colleagues that we bring on board. So ma many people decide for a company based on the people they meet in the recruiting process. So um, you start with yourself, right? If, you, if you're having good days because all morning you didn't have meetings and then in the afternoon you only have the interviews, it's much more likely that you also are not stressed out in the interview, that you can actually take the time, take a breath and really try to look this person in the eye and understand their context and their story and that starts with you then let's say this is an amazing person you bring them on and then of course when they one day do interviews um they'll they'll bring on along the same vibe and feeling and, and the same culture to to any anyone they interview and then it i, I kind of think at userlane this is what kept happening over the last five years and now we are in a um i'm incredibly thankful for the situation that we are in that Regularly, I hear the feedback from candidates when I hear them when I interview them at the very end of the process that uh, they loved everyone they saw and they find this is one of the most um, 
vibrant uh, cultures that they've experienced in the hiring process makes me really glad. And what we are looking for, well, as I said, right, it's when you're having fun at doing your work, you probably also spend a significant amount of time in it. You probably got good over it over the over all these time that you spent with it, the 10,000 hour rule, right? And yeah, then it's usually that's just a fit. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. One thing that you said is you grew from like 50 to 100 uh, in the past year or so. And it, it, there's this saying that every time a company sort of doubles or triples in size, like everything breaks. What are, what are some of the things that sort of uh, broke that you'd sort of uh, advise other CTOs to look for as they uh, rapidly scale their organizations? I mean, as, as any good software architect would say, it, it depends. Uh, I think on what you on your unique set of of challenges in your company, I think generally if you already the awareness that things will break is a good point to start with, right? So just think about um, what you what you do more than than a handful of times you gotta automate, right? So and this this applies not just to engineering tasks but literally all around the company, and you probably wanna bring on recruiters and that will that work for you um, when you have when you want to hire that many people and then um, they define a scalable process for onboarding people for interviewing people and that it, that makes many things more scalable and generally just you know if you look at a company and any kind of business process with an engineering mindset where it's about automation then um, you know where is the biggest pain and you know that probably you just need to structure it or automate it or provide some guidance assistance to your users and then um, any process will fly. Perfect. So uh, as a CTO, but, but, but also a co-founder, how, how do you demonstrate impact to your team at different altitudes, right? Both the CEO, potentially the, the board or the exec slash management team, and then the, the sort of the rest of the company. How, how do you think about that sort of dichotomy? Yeah, this, uh, that, that is a really good question. The short answer is do good things and then talk about them. And the long answer is way more complex. <laughs> you start starts with also how you think about your roadmap. So we adopted now next later roadmaps. So we don't really structure them in quarters or months anymore. And we don't try to predict something that we can't predict. And actually, I think building a piece of software is more art than it is like um, um, like a manufacturing work. So it's, you cannot really, like with more pressure exerted on timelines or something, you only, you're not always going to get better results. And the now next later roadmap uh, communicates really well about what stakeholders also want to know. And they are really readable also from a very high altitude, especially if you link them um, with OKR, right? So that you're not going to list features, but you're going to list objectives or maybe key results on that altitude. And then um, these are business objectives, right? So anyone will understand what that means. For example, you want to win like 100 new customers in North America and then that means that you're going to build like maybe a US data center or this means that you, you know, build some features that are more relevant for somehow this and that market. But you don't like that's basically the features become a side note or become the description text of your key results or objectives. And then you put them in now, next, later and people know, OK, we're busy with something right now. There is always something in the pipeline. Right. Then we run um, something like a monthly release radar, we call it. So where we only go over the topics that are very close to the finishing line or have been released in, in the recent past and explain them and explain the impact on the business outcome and on the vision. And then in 
next and later we keep all the follow-up items and in, in, uh, in next it's kind of the, the topics that we are currently planning or already researching or already have a pretty good idea about what they're going to be, what the scope is going to be. And then in later it can, it really connects to your vision and to your long-term goals, right? Like why do you exist? How does your company or your product make the world a better place? Because ultimately that's what any product should do. And you keep these things there and you kind of often break them down into smaller bits and pieces that then fall through the, the later and now column, uh, the next and now column, so that you um, continuously communicate on what, what you're working on and then you kind of show progress this way. And that, that's, that's it has been working for us pretty, pretty solidly over the last year. I'm curious, and uh, we're going back to, to uh, operations and culture, but uh, why, why OKRs? Uh, why do you think OKRs make, uh, like, user lane a better place uh, to work? And I'm also curious, uh, what would you advise, like, a first-time, like, technical leader who's trying to implement method methodology like, like this one? Yeah, so OKR are, 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 like, everyone's talking about OKRs, so this word kind of, like the meaning of it was dissolved now it's basically just another word for goals and the point is that it should be served in like a in like a fractal manner or in like um a repeating manner so you have a higher order goal you break that down right and it's just about keeping like hold on to that chain right about what an individual or a team a small team will do with their um team goal or okr right that links to like a, on maybe a department goal and that maybe to the organization goal and that links to the vision and then you kind of know what you're doing now in the next few weeks um how will that impact the long-term vision right and that's the magic of okr right and then one more thing that was um, is often misunderstood. It's, it shouldn't be things like ship feature X um, as your objective, right? That works. It's better than nothing. But um, what is even better is if you look at some product metrics like active users, like time spent per session or how many sessions there are, how sticky your users are, right? These should be probably your objectives. You can find your own metric, right? But pretty much if you're building a SaaS product, um, start with number of users and stickiness. That's a good starting point. And then iterate from there, right? And you can have hypotheses of which metrics really make a difference between um, valuable customers with a high value to, to you and, and not so much. And then you can try to optimize for them and to basically um, level up your users and bring them to level one, level two, level three, so that they'll be more and more engaged and more and more deep into your product. And that's basically what you're, what you're trying to build and this methodology really connects well with the now, next, later roadmaps that I've uh, I've just mentioned, and together this this makes then also really uh, simple to show your impact and what you as an engineering or software team or product team are are doing for the SaaS business. I mean, you're at the core of it anyway, right? So without you, everything would be just uh, a bunch of PowerPoint slides. So <laughs> it's pretty. It should be pretty pretty straightforward to to justify it from there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of like KPIs, um, do you have any sort of internal KPIs uh, that you use to measure your like, your team's performance? Yeah, that is a good question because it's like the holy grail of engineering management, right? Like how to tell whether someone's productive. But the short answer here is you just don't. Um, you just focus on these OKRs, and if that if the team works right and gets to, um, if the if if the communication is consistent when it comes to deliverables, um, then if your if your product is successful on the market, right? If if you're really listening to your customers, but how exactly engineers spend their days is not so much of your concern. But there is another thing, right? Um, you what what I do is I think about the culture, but also about the developer experience of our code and our platform that we are building as like 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 a product. 
So I do product management on it. So this means I interview users, in this case, my own developers and ask them, well, what do you, what do you think we should improve, right? What do you like? What do you hate? And that is really valuable feedback, right? And you can also survey your engineering team, ask them on a scale of one to 10, how well do you like this microservice or this component? Right, and then you you get basically map out the health of your tech stack and what engineers would would like to improve, and usually your engineering team has a good sense for that. And then you don't say yes to all these things, right? Because of course you also want to balance it with um, delivering like a visible outcome to the users, visible changes there. And but this is a way to tell how good the developer experience is, right? Is everyone in pain about your CI/CD system, or do they actually do do you how often do you release, right? And these are feedback points about your developer experience and engineering culture and then you basically take it from there and try to try to um, incrementally improve it i'm gonna do uh sort of a change of of lanes now what's keeping you up at night over the next 12 months yeah if only i would know that um <laughs> because there is like i need as i said uh, probably i need to reinvent myself uh, this year and next year again so i don't yet know what exactly it will be but generally, um, I, over the last years, it has it has more and more become um, like the long-term impact, the, the culture, right? I'm a bit paranoid, right? So many entrepreneurs tell me that, yeah, when you are past the 100, when you're past the 50 or the 150, right, that you got to make really careful that you don't mess up your culture. So I'm I'm basically doing doing more and more work there and trying to listen to people, trying to really understand what what is a good enterprise, right? And really acknowledge that you've got to introduce some process and some like it's going to be more superficial to work with 150 people because you can't be everyone's best friend, right? As if, uh, as like you were when, um, when you have been the first 20 people in a company, basically spending day and night together and <laughs> being basically a small revolution. And that is normal, right? And you gotta, gotta just acknowledge that and be aware of that, right? And address it preactively. So every time we go through a funding round or through um, a scaling phase like this, I basically preach it to the team many, many times. Things are changing right change is the only constant on earth it's not about preserving culture or if culture was a fire it's not about passing on the ashes to the next generation it's rather about keeping the fire burning and of course as you let's say put different wood pieces in and out of the fire of course the color and maybe shape size everything will will change you know and the question is just will that be good and also acknowledge that probably through a funding round you'll lose 10 percent of your people just because they don't like the bigger company anymore or maybe because now they have um they get they get better opportunities to maybe even start their own business somewhere and it's just completely natural, right? Whereas if if one person leaves the team at twenty people, it's like it's like a family member like nearly dies or something. But at, at just um, a larger company, it's okay that it uh, that it's kind of normal, right? Because just statistically, it will happen. And um, just be open about your culture, right? Do it again, like product management. Listen to your customers, your users, right? Ask for feedback. Develop your culture roadmap or your vision, right? About what do you want what what kind of company do you want to be when you are at 200 people right and these are kind of the things that i think will keep me keep me up over the next year this this sort of idea of that the company grows and not everyone is sort of a right fit for different stages of the company is very powerful so if you sort of set those expectations beforehand um it would yeah. make things a lot easier uh, as you grow i guess it's fine if, if, if people just maybe they don't like yeah, uh, 150 people companies. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, and yeah, and setting that expectation, communicating that openly, right? Also, like you know, 
treating people with respect if they decide to leave of course all of that belo belongs together right and um thanking them for the impact uh, anyway and basically uh, your culture is also defined and measured by how you treat people that left and that's that's part of it so um just don't be an ass right just be nice that's i think the the, the short advice out of this i'm curious what what writer or book has had the greatest influence on 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 I was going to say your career, but I, I'm also curious about sort of life in general. Yeah, yeah. And career and life are basically the same thing anyway. And one of the books that actually expresses this idea also very beautifully, and I think is the one book that inspired me the most, is The Meaning Revolution by Fred Kaufman. He's also the author of Conscious Business, which, which um, you might have heard of. And they, he really explains very, very beautiful that, that work-life integration aspect, that work is about offering a purpose, right? Offering, offering a way for, for them to pursue their own goals in your organization. So they don't work for you, they work for themselves in your place. That is pretty much the, the mindset and the attitude that, that kept inspiring me. And that basically was also one of the first books I read about leadership when I originally got into it. And I think for me, this defines the best practice. And I would recommend it to anyone who's going, thinking about building a, being a leader and not just a manager. I think that is a perfect uh, place to end on. Felix, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. And I hope we have a great rest of the day. Yo, thank you so much and have an awesome weekend. Ciao, ciao. Hey, this is Gons again. If you enjoyed this episode of Startup Conversations, please let us know by leaving an honest review. If you'd like to hear more conversations like this one or find out more about the collaboration between SeedTable and CircleCI, visit seedtable.com forward slash conversations. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.